You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Ramalee E. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the University of Chicago, studying why some people and societies are poor, unequal, and violent, and how to tackle these issues. Holding a PhD from UC Berkeley, his latest book is titled Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace, which draws on decades of economics, political science, and psychology, and real-world interviews to lay out the root causes and remedies for war. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Chris Blattman. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. To start off, um, as always, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work and how you got into studying war and conflict. Sure. So my day job essentially is I like to work. I'm working in places where there's a lot of, I would say, low scale group violence, um, civil wars in Africa. warring ethnic villages, uh, warring criminal groups in in Colombia or Mexico, or even in, in Chicago. And I, I search out little, I don't know, innovative locals and new strategies and bright ideas that maybe haven't been tested that sound a little bit too good to be true. And I try to figure out if they work and why and, and scale them up and test them. And so that's, and I've done that in West Africa and Latin America in Chicago, um, you know, sometimes finding people with really, really successful strategies. And that's kind of what led me down this road to uh, try to understand and tell people about what, what we know about you know, why we fight and, and how, to, how to stop that. If you are a professional looking at the European startup scene, Germany is a place you cannot miss. Fortunately for you, there is StartupRad.eo, the authority on German startups. This English-only podcast brings you fresh interviews each week. Most likely, you have never heard or read anything on these startups before in English, but you will in the future. Be ahead of the curve and subscribe to StartupRad.eo podcast or check for the StartupRad.eo internet radio station. Check your Alexa for the StartupRad.eo skill as well. Okay, um, so to start off today, I wanted to ask you about what you observed in Medellin, Colombia, um, surrounding the high levels of violence and the eventual paths to peace, which, as I understand it, is quite reflective of many of your broader conclusions. Yeah, I mean, Medellin is like a it's like a microcosm of it's, it's an interesting way to sort of look at the whole world, which which is not your first impression because you know I've been working Medellin for the last this is. For the last six years, this is Colombia's second largest city. It's industrial commercial heartland. It's also home to about 400 really well-armed, really well-organized street gangs with a really robust industry and retail drugs and extortion and selling all sorts of other legal goods. Uh, a lot of these guys are in prison. And so to understand how these organizations work and why they fight and why they don't fight, uh, my collaborators and I spent a lot of time in the prisons talking to the leaders. Um, they'll speak to us pretty openly they're you know they're tough they're secure they're they're interested in you know talking they're actually interested in talking to professors they they like to talk shop and one of them was telling us about uh a fight that broke out in his cell block some years before where 
basically over a game of billiards, two two members of rival gangs who lived in the same cell block had some disagreement. He doesn't remember why, but uh, but it but it got her to hand really fast. And one side pulled out their guns and shot the other. And and why they have guns in prison is a whole other podcast, probably. But uh, but when the dust settled, a number of people were shot. Nobody was killed, amazingly. Nonetheless, as you can imagine, over the next few weeks, there were a lot of reprisal killings. And that began to spill out onto the streets. And every gang in the city lined up behind one side or the other, and everybody prepared for war. Uh, but there never was a billiards war. Um, we, you know, the, the, And it didn't happen for a couple of reasons. So one of them is, is that, first of all, the war would have been you know, costly. Everyone risked their lives. Nobody actually wants to fight. But more importantly, there was a sort of there was a group of shadowy higher level leaders, including one of the people we were talking to, who, who, um, who really didn't want a war. They were the wholesalers to the retail operations. They were sort of the big criminal bosses in the city, and and a war would have been ruinous for them. Not just because they wouldn't nobody sells drugs in a gunfight, but because because uh, in wartime they kind of lose the invisibility that's their shield police, the journalists, the city government, the national prosecutors start to investigate them, prosecute them, put them in jail, not just the combo leaders, these gang leaders. And, and so, uh, so they act as peacemakers. And so if, 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 if gangs are pursuing their own interests or they're settling scores or they're hot-headed and passionate, well, they'll sanction them sometimes at the point of a gun. If they're if they need to sort of settle their differences, they'll provide a bargaining table. They call it la mesa, the table, or la oficina, the office. And if they can't make a deal or they can't really trust the other side to hold up a deal where these sort of shadowy overlords uh, will, will, will hold that deal, they'll, they'll guarantee it. And, and so I liken them a little bit, you know, I liken the situation to the wider world we live in. We live in a, in a world with hundreds of gangs, you know, we call them states, but, but, organized political groups, sometimes pursuing their own interests, often unsavory. Uh, and we have a sort of set of somewhat unequal, you know, institutions. We have these sort of big bosses, you know, we call it the UN Security Council, and and they sometimes use their power somewhat, you know, unequally, inconsistently, uh, in a favoritist way, but nonetheless, they manage to guarantee a, a certain amount of peace. And that's how I open up the book. I open up the book sort of trying to make a few points. One is that most of the time we don't fight because it's so costly, just like the billiards war that was never fought. We don't talk enough about the, the wars that were not fought. And we have to if we're going to understand why some wars were fought. And then, of course, we do fight. And uh, and the solution to that um, obviously doesn't look like, you know, organized criminal systems in Medellin, but, but that provides some clues to actually what kinds of institutions, uh, function today and, and might function better in the future. Okay. Um, so you said in the book that there are only five reasons why conflict wins over compromise. Um, so I wanted to spend a bit of time going over them and getting an understanding of these five factors. Um, the first of which is unchecked leaders, um, where leaders don't bear the cost of war. So I think this one is especially relevant given what we've seen recently in Russia, where Putin has consolidated power to the extent that he and the political elite in Moscow um, don't face the brunt of the economic isolation and hardship felt by the rest of the Russian people. However, even in most, even in the most authoritarian of regimes, there's still got to be some minimum benchmark of support below which a, a coup or a revolution becomes imminent, right? No, absolutely. So I think you've, you're absolutely right. 
I think this is a, the perfect starting point for understanding a lot of conflicts, especially this one. Now, stepping back for one second, I mean, why do we fight? Well, I think it actually starts, we don't fight because war is so ruinous. It's just so costly. Most of the time we, we try to avoid it. Um, and so every answer to why we do fight is a reason that a society or its leaders ignore those costs. And the first and most important is what you've just said. It's the idea that, well, a relatively unchecked autocratic leader doesn't bear most of the costs, right? And so they're going to be too ready to use violence. But as you as you point out, there, you know, no one's completely unchecked, and 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 some even someone like Putin does bear some costs of war. So maybe at most that isn't enough. Maybe or maybe at minimum that isn't it isn't enough to have an unchecked leader. And maybe there has to we have to turn to one of the other four reasons. But the way in which you might say unchecked leaders are enough is what happens when those leaders, be they autocratic or not, have a personal or private interest in fighting. If they think that they can cling on to power or or avoid being overthrown by going to war. will and in, the, in that case, they will take their group to war, not just because they're ignoring the costs, but because they're they believe their hold on power is going to be solidified by waging a fight. And you could argue that that's a relevant consideration for Putin, that exterminating like a democratic flame on his doorstep amongst the people whom Russians identify with more than anyone else on the planet was in some ways a threat to his regime and he wanted to see it gone. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think the the next cause of war that you discuss is titled intangible tastes. Um, and that occurs when adversaries desire something that can only be achieved through violence, um, like vengeance or glory. Um, so Dr. Blattman, in your observations, does this tend to be a, a cultural phenomenon as in some cultures being more inclined to use violence to settle disputes as opposed to others, or some kind of demographic trend, like the primarily young male thugs running the streets of Medellin that are hotheads and gravitate towards fighting or some kind of other phenomenon entirely that leads to certain groups, certain groups um, having a, a predisposition for violence. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know what it's about certain groups with a predisposition to violence. So that can happen. Um, you could imagine a group of say religious fanatics who refuse to compromise uh, whatever pragmatic compromise the costs of war demand, maybe they just find it repugnant and they refuse to do that. I think what you see more commonly, I mean, let's go back to to the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the stories we hear in the press. We hear stories of Putin pursuing personal glory, um, his own place in history, or sort of seeking some sort of greater Russian glory, getting the empire back together. Um, you, you can believe these or you cannot believe them, but recognize them as a story of these intangible incentives or these ideological incentives. It's a story whereby we say, listen, there are costs of war, but a people or in particular, a, a ruler is willing to pay them for these imaginary, but nonetheless important objectives. Um, and so those most of the stories you hear in the press, I think, are ones of these intangible incentives leading Putin to uh, enter into the cost of war or, or sorry, wage war in spite of the costs. Okay, um, that's that's interesting um, because I think from an economics perspective, um, we're usually trained to to view things as as you know um, parties as, as sort of rational actors that are making trade offs, and so we think well, Russia declared war on Ukraine, um, therefore. Um, the cost to Russia, uh, sorry, the benefit to Russia from potentially winning this war um, must outweigh the costs and, and the risk that's built into that. Um, so 
I, I think when when you talk about these sort of unchecked leaders, though, um, that completely changes this this sort of decision calculus here, um, right. because um, it's it's now these these leaders who are weighing the the costs and benefits, and if that trade off justifies it for them alone, um, they can send their entire country to war. Um, and so, right. Do you think so, in sort of economics lingo. The story, it's the story of unchecked leaders is basically an agency problem. It's saying that the groups are not faithfully, sorry, that leaders aren't faithfully representing the interests of their groups. They're ignoring the cost to some group members or they're pursuing a private agenda. And, and again, translated into economics, the story of intangible incentives is just to say that we have a really wide variety of human preferences that yes, we like material wealth and maybe territory, but why can't we also like uh, glory or why can't we also value vengeance or why can't we also value maybe liberty for the sake of liberty. And so there are certain principles, noble or ignoble, that we're willing to pay a cost for. And our preferences are our preferences. There's nothing necessarily irrational about desiring glory. In fact, you know, status competition is a very basic sort of human trait. And so so it's I'm careful to say, and, and there's not necessarily any regret over fighting for these things, right? Which would imply they were irrational or a mistake. You know, our, our preferences are our preferences. Okay. Um, yeah. So, do you do you see the sort of positive correlation between countries um, that that do have um, lower levels of accountability and higher levels uh, of violence? Um, not just between countries, um, but also potentially within um, groups within within countries where um, sort of this this democratic accountability structure isn't present. Are they more likely to engage in conflict because that decision calculus looks so different? Somewhat, I think there's there's, a, there's simply not enough not enough investigation into this, and not enough, I would say, careful and very good quality empirical investigation. It's something I'm working on right now myself. Um, I think we do know that democracies very seldom go to war for one, with one another, and the accountability of their leaders is is one of those reasons. For me, what's more important than elections, however, are are essentially what I would call checks and balances on power. Uh, and the election is an important check and balance on power, but but you can have you can have a lot of unchecked leaders even in a democracy. You know, I spent a lot of time working in Liberia, where the president is essentially a five year autocrat because they have complete centralized control, can appoint every mayor. This is completely, almost completely unencumbered by uh, the parliament or what their Congress essentially. Um, and so, so it's the absence of checks and balances rather than elections or the absence of elections that I think are important. And so I think it's the personalization of power in a democracy or in an autocracy like Russia that's so dangerous. And, but the, you know, this is tricky to prove. And, uh, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the evidence is focused too much on elections and it's found a little bit more ambiguous work. I'm, I'm doing some research now where, uh, where where that's suggesting that that sort of personalized lack of you know power and lacks of checks and balances are really one of the you know the principal drivers of conflict in 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 most countries in the last you know century. Okay, um, so then the third and fourth cause you state for war over compromise are misperceptions and uncertainty, which occur when adversaries are overconfident, make mistakes, or have poor information. Again, this is th- this idea um, is one of those things I think we've seen time and time again um, with Hitler's invasion of the USSR to Putin's invasion of Russia. Um, this one is particularly interesting to me to examine from a, a game theory perspective, because any leader um, that has to make the call between going to war or trying to de-escalate a situation diplomatically has to make 
has to do so on the basis of um, incomplete information about the adversary and their intentions and their capabilities. So in your view, what's the best way to try and reduce these types of mistakes? Is it potentially to invest more in intelligence capabilities or to spread out the decision um, um, of whether to go to war amongst a, a legislative body so that hubris doesn't prevail or, or something else entirely? Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's sort of two embedded in there. One is just sort of uncertainty in the fact that you can simply, you don't know, you don't know the costs of war and you don't know your enemies resolve and their strength. And so you can, you can, you have to gamble on whether or not you go to war or not. And your optimal strategy in that uncertainty is never to just always, you know, give in. Uh, it's, it's to sometimes attack, especially because uh, uncertainty creates this sort of strategic dynamic of, of you're worried about your enemy bluffing. And so in the Russia Ukraine example, the idea that, Russia did not, you know, there were so many things were uncertain, like Ukraine strength, Western unity on sanctions, Russian military capability. And so to, these, these weren't, it wasn't necessarily a mistake to attack. No, it might've also been a mistake, but it was also fundamentally uncertain. And so, and, and nobody, least of all Vladimir Putin expected that he'd get a draw, a bad draw on all three of those things. On top of that, he may have been irrational or made systematic mistakes in the sense of having really bad quality information. So it's not just uncertain, but he was biased. And so that's a, that's this fourth category. I think the solution to these two things are distinct. You know, the, 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 the solution in some sense to uncertainty, so certainly intelligence systems and investing and understanding your enemy better, but I think having a set of institutions between rivals, and that could be at the city level mediation between gangs, it can be at the international level tables where there's dialogue, back channels, all of these things are tremendously important. Third parties, independent third parties who can verify the claims of either side become extremely important at reducing this uncertainty and, and lessening the ability to bluff and lessening the incentives to gamble. As for misperceptions, I mean, autocratic power not only leads to unchecked leaders who ignore the costs and prove their, and, and sort of go after their private agendas, it also tends to really lead to a lot of breakdown in 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 truth telling and, and speaking truth to power and i think this is yet another reason that highly personalized centralized regimes are vulnerable and, and so as an autocrat you can try your best to have really good information systems and encourage people to speak to speak truth to power it's probably the opposite of what putin's done but you will always struggle it's it's fundamentally at odds so, so in some sense i feel like more checks and balances are and and sort of better institutions and spreading spreading power are going to limit the likelihood of misperceptions, but you know, it's never, never a sure thing. Okay. Um, and so the final cause that you state is commitment problems, which occur for um, when groups or countries have a first mover advantage and can avert their opponent from being strong in the future. Um, so this one is something I think that has been on a lot of people's minds after the Russia invasion due to the yeah. increased threat of nuclear proliferation in, in other countries so they don't end up like Ukraine. Um, so can you please tell us a bit more about the, the situations um, in which this first mover advantage typically occurs and what, if anything, can be done by potential victims of this type of aggression or the international community to prevent it from happening? Yeah, so basically a commitment problem is just you find your opponent unreliable. There's a deal that you both prefer to fight, but then you don't really neither side really trusts the other side to uphold the deal. They, they think that the other side has an incentive to renege on it in future. Um, and one of those you bring up is the idea that if like, if my enemy's weak now, but strong in future, um, they can promise that they won't take advantage of their strength in future to 
to avert me of invading now, but I can't really trust them unless there's some maybe guarantee or they can write a constitution or there's some international body or third party or somebody that they can tie their hands. I don't believe it. And so I have an incentive to attack now while I'm strong. Um, that's, that's one variety of commitment problem, but we can sort of see other commitment problems at work, even in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Neither side really trusts each other to be able to hold up to a deal. It's not because and we expect anyone expects Ukraine to be super powerful in future. So it's that's obviously not the only source of a commitment problem. Russia doesn't trust Ukraine to be able to hold up to the terms of any deal because they think that um, the average Ukrainian, in some sense, has an intangible incentive or an ideological incentive to be part of the West, to have their liberty, and to reject the semi-sovereignty and neutrality and political interference, no matter the price. And so they can't really make a credible deal with, with the Ukrainian government because they think the Ukrainian government will renege in the same way that they never implemented the previous set of accords, so the Minsk Accords. Likewise, what people are more familiar with is nobody really trusts Putin, who they think is motivated by these glory and personal interests and personalized power. They they don't trust him to, they think that any deal or settlement that's make is just an an opportunity for him to regroup, you know, gather his forces and then invade again, cutting off Ukraine slice by slice or maybe taking over the Balkans. So again, they don't really trust Putin to commit to a deal. Um, this is a commitment problem driven not by, both of these are examples of commitment problems, not driven by the fact that one is going to be super powerful in the future, but because they, they actually don't trust the ideological and intangible incentives of either side. They think they're going to fight on no matter what. And so it brings in a whole other kind of commitment problem. And so these are just incredibly common. They may be one of the most important drivers of long wars. And and yet they're one of the ideas that's, I think, least understood by the general public, yet most important. Okay. Um, and so I think just, just uh, from, from sort of the perspective of some of the former Soviet or, or satellite states um, that are looking at this Russia-Ukraine invasion at the moment and thinking, well, what's to stop Putin from, you know, if his Ukraine invasion is successful, or perhaps even if it's not, um, from turning around and, and marching into our country next? Um, you know, especially the ones that are not a part of NATO. Um, and, and so, I mean, Russia's already suffered the brunt of the sanctions. Um, you know, yep. why, why not just um, keep keep going, keep expanding the empire? And and so, if you're one of those leaders sitting there right now, you think, well, Russia does have this type of advantage. Um, you know, it's either um, try and join NATO, get nuclear weapons, or be invaded. So I'd say I think that's right, but I think it's already happened in the sense that I think Russia has used imperial power to threaten and cow most of its neighbors. So it's it, Kazakhstan sort of grudgingly accepted quote unquote peacekeepers last year or the year before. And 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 we see Russia wielding this influence in, in Georgia. And in Kazakh and sorry, and in and in Belarus, which is almost completely sort of uh, um, subjugated to to Putin, and and so uh, and and these are precisely the countries that were not part of the NATO alliance, and it's the ones who are part of NATO who, like the Balkans, who have who have resisted that because it's simply too difficult and costly for Russia to interfere too much. What's I think all of these are examples of this basic thing I started with, which is that we have these really strong incentives not to fight. And so a lot of peace is unjust. A lot of peace is the powerful actor, in this case, Russia, 
basically offering its neighbors semi-sovereignty and being part of its imperial sphere, as all other imperial powers, including the UK and the US and China and everyone else, they all play this game and they've successfully cowed their neighbors. And, and war is the last resort very seldom used. And, and indeed, Putin tried everything short of war for 20 years in Ukraine. You know, the war was his last resort. So so in some sense, ultimately, he resorted to invasion, but but he tried everything else first. And in most of these other republics, he successfully cowed them without actually having to to use to, to, to invade them. He's merely had to wield the threat of war. Okay, um, so finally, I wanted to very quickly go over the paths to peace. Um, one of my favorite quotes from you is, quote, it's very easy to pay attention to all the conflicts and forget that for every march to war, there are dozens or hundreds or thousands of compromises that reach peace. So personally, as I look through historical conflicts and the world around us today, I feel fairly optimistic, even in the face of the Ukraine invasion, about the prospects for more peaceful peaceful world going forward for a few reasons. And I wanted to see if they align with your findings. So mm -hmm. the first is that our mortality salience as, as a species seems to be declining rapidly. So a few centuries ago, um, a third of infants or, or thereabouts died soon after birth and a lack of modern medicine meant that deaths due to disease or accidents was much, much more common. Now, as people all over the world have fewer kids, and we as a society invest hundreds of thousands, if not more, in every child to educate them, um, a, a child born today can expect to live well into their 70s or 80s. Um, it seems to me that we have a much lower salience for our own mortality and, uh, and a lower appetite for, for bloodshed, or, or at least that's my take. So, Dr. Blattman, I wanted to get your take on, on what the global future of, of war and conflict looks like and ask you to tell us a bit more about this idea of, of the path to peace. That's interesting. So uh, I haven't thought about that before. I would say, I mean, it seems plausible to me that to the extent that we, you're say, basically saying we treasure our lives more and therefore war is more costly and therefore we're more likely to avoid it. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm actually don't know if we treasure our lives more. Um, let's say that's true. I think this would only matter if the people who treasure their lives could hold their political leaders accountable to not go to war. And so for me, the missing ingredient there are these checks and balances on power and are the ability to solve this agency problem to constrain our leaders. And only, and only then would us treasuring our lives more translate into, into different policy. Um, and so the, you know, for me, the, I think the big change that's happened in the last 60 years and is, is also happening, hopefully continuing in future, I think is a steady increase in, in checks and balances and in, in many parts of the world. Um, but, but, but certainly if what you're saying is true, is true, then it would, would, I think only add to that and, and push us towards peace as well. Okay. But even, even if, um, it's the, the people that, um, you say, you know, are, are treasuring their lives, aren't the ones directly making this decision. Um, if you're a, a leader, um, of any country and you're making this decision of whether to go to war and you know, it's going to cost you a hundred thousand lives, say, and yeah. you as a society have invested millions of dollars in, 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 um, you know, raising those um, children, educating them, potentially putting them through college. And those hundred thousand people are skilled. They have, they can contribute so much value value to the economy, um, much more so than if you were a leader in, say, the 1800s and thinking, well, this is going to cost me 100,000 men. 
yeah, well, the, the, you know, there's a lot more. They, the, the um, rate at which people have kids is a lot more. So that population is going to be replaced much quicker. Um, and also we're not as personally invested or financially invested as a society in each of those individuals. Um, so even if the, that correlation is missing between the people that are the ones fighting, the ones that are making the decision um, of whether to go to war, um, isn't it still as, as the leader of a society, doesn't that still sort of change the math for you a bit? Yeah, I think it can. I mean, but I think the crucial bit there is the fact that my personal wealth and enrichment is tied up in 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 the well-being of these people and the fact that they're 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 not subject to war. And so I think the sense in which I think the leader of an industrial economy is probably much less likely to go to war than the leader of a of an extractive economy that's just say pumping oil out of the ground because the oil will keep pumping when you're at war but but the industry the industrial production could grind to a halt potentially or be undermined and so i think yeah i think i think there's a whole set of economic incentives like of how we've organized society and how production is organized into which longevity and human capital investments matter um, that are going to just make war more costly for leaders. And, and yeah, so everything that on the margin makes war a little bit more costly to even an autocratic leader is going to, is going to move us a little bit further away from, from that possibility. And, and do you think on the whole that those, those margins are shifting, um, you know, potentially looking over the past, um, you know, a couple decades or a couple centuries, do you think that those margins are shifting um, or consistently shifting so that in, you know, a few decades time, you know, it might be an, ex an, an exceptionally rare case where war is ever justified autocratic or democratic? I would like to think, I, I'm not sure over the span of decades, we're going to see a dramatic change. Um, I'd like that to be true. I think if we were to have a serious shift away from personalized autocratic regimes and have more checks on power, that that would be true. And if we were to sort, if we were to also further develop our international institutions to to be more uh, to be more effective and also to hold the great powers in check, which is possible in a more multipolar world, that could be where things go. I think that probably happened over the next century. I'm hopeful. But I, over the next couple of decades, is perhaps not not going to happen. Uh, sadly. Okay. Um, and so one last thing. Um, you, you've talked a lot, I, I think, about um, checks uh, on power, and I, I sort of wanted to delve a bit into that and, and understand what um, sort of those checks actually look like. So I think when when we think of checks and balances in in, in American context, we think of sort of the the um, Federalist Fifty One separation of powers. Um, you know, where there's three co-equal branches of government and they each check each other. But I think and, until the War Powers Act, um, you know, the, the president could almost unilaterally go to war, um, you know, threat of impeachment aside. Um, but besides that, um, what I mean, would you what what sort of other systems would you say, um, you know, potentially non-presidential systems, um, you know, thinking about, say, parliamentary systems, they might also have their own method of checks um, in the sense that a prime minister couldn't necessarily, you know, deploy troops in the same way uh, a president could. So um, do you think there is a system of, of checks or, or one particular check that you've observed to be the most effective um, or is it just any system of, um, you know, accountability within within a government? So I do. I, I mean, I think the empirical, unfortunately, like the hard sort of statistical empirical evidence on this is, I'm not going to, it's basically absent. I think it's it's a right for 
for investigation, but I think there's just an overwhelming amount of theory and, and other kinds of qualitative evidence to suggest that um, spreading power, I mean, look at how we spread power in the United States, but also in all sorts of advanced democracies. It's across branches of government, so to the judiciary and the legislature and the executive, but it's also to subnational regions, right? So it's where mayors are elected and they have the ability to budget and tax and regional governments or state governments have the ability to budget and tax uh, or sort of ta to, to tax and spend. Um, we we also create independent civil services and an independent bureaucracy or the deep state. All of these are checks and balances. We sign treaties. We join. Uh, we join. You know, you create the African Union or the European Union or ECOWAS, which is a system of West African states. You know, as all as, and, and, and all of these sorts of international unions. Those are all ways of checking the power of of national governments as well through this sort of like above the level of the country, not below, and. I think all of those have been evolving steadily and, you know, not just they don't move ahead every day in, the, in a constant direction, but I think there's been a general progress in those types of checks and balances. And I think that's spreading power out and that's where that's happened. I think it's pacifying. Okay. Um, well, as much as, um, you know, I would, I would love to continue our, our discussion. I think we've gone on for, for quite a bit of time. So those are all the questions that I have for you today. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. It's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Plevin. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.